If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 12. Luke 12, we are uh, working our way through uh, the parables of Jesus. We, we've been highlighting Matthew in the morning, Luke in the evening, and we find ourselves looking at um, a parable I think that we are familiar with, but maybe we don't read it often. Maybe you've not heard it preached on. I've never preached on it for sure, and uh, um, yet it is, it is one when you read it, and I, I'll confess to you, it took me a long time to figure out what in the world this guy do wrong, right? Why do I not agree with Jesus? Have you ever read the Bible and think that? We'll do one from Matthew soon like that. Uh, but I think as we see that what Jesus is saying is a message that we as Americans, we as Christians need to hear. Luke chapter 12, and with that, if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. When it be Luke 12, we'll start in verse 13. We'll go down to verse 34. The evangelist Luke writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? He said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. He told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. And I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I say to my soul, so you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. And God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. He said to his disciples, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. Life is, is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And I tell you, even Solomon, in all of his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. If God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith, do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, or, or, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with the treasure in the heavens. That does not fall, fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, thank you for your love and your mercy. Thank you again for allowing us to be here this evening to open up your word. And we trust that we, are, we, we become more like Jesus because of it. So open our hearts that we would receive your word, our mind that we would understand it, our eyes that we would see your glory, our ears that we would hear and heed, our mouth that we would speak the truth of the hope that is within us, and our hands and our feet that we will go in obedience to Christ. Transform us by the power of your grace. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Over the years, I've been in vocational ministry for 17 years, pastoral ministry for over 12. And over the years, I've done a lot of funerals, a lot of them. In fact, my first three, four months, I don't know, of pastoral ministry, I, I either uh, preached at, participated in, or went to about 10 funerals. Um, and just, just thrown right into it, uh, visiting the families, uh, participating in services, all that sort of stuff. In fact, my very first funeral I ever did as, as the main speaker, 
uh, chairman of the deacon was asked to speak. And uh, he didn't know what he was doing. And at one point he, he said, I'm going to follow your lead, preacher, because you know what you're doing. And little did he know, <laughs> right? I'd never done this, a funeral like this. I was always like the guy who's going to stand up and read scripture. I was never uh, one of the, the main, main guys. But I would tell you the ugliest part of every funeral is not the tears shed at the closing of the casket. When the family comes up and, and you stand at the head of the casket and, and there are those who are saying goodbye to the very last time. It's, it's not the worst part. It's, it's not the organizing of the funeral and the agony of what would mom or dad or, or cousin or whatever want or like or wear or what music should be played. It's, it's not the organization of the service. The ugliest and worst part of any death is by far the fight over the inheritance. Chances are, some of us here this evening have stories to tell. Maybe in your family, maybe it's you. Chances are, you have stories to tell. Chances are, there are people in your family, cousins, uncles, aunts, parents, siblings, you've hardly spoken to over the issue of inheritance. All too often, I've found that people we have loved and enjoyed for years can in an instant become an enemy all over possessions. And the conversation that sets this parable up is over precisely that. In verses 13 to 15, we get the setting of the parable. And it is a striking one. The question comes from an unnamed individual who just shouts out a question to Jesus while he's in the middle of teaching. In fact, just consider what it is Jesus just said. Go back with me to verse 8. We didn't read this part earlier. But this is the real setting that sets up the setting for the parable. I tell you, Jesus says, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more than they can do. Now, notice Jesus is talking about death. Do not fear those who may harm you, even to the point of death. And what's the question coming at him? Hey, Jesus, speaking of death, <laughs> boy, have I got a question for you. Don't fear those who may kill the body, and after, and after that have nothing more they can do. But I will warn you that uh, to whom to fear, fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and are not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Notice what Jesus is saying here. He says, one, do not fear what the world may do to you. Fear what God might do to you. I remember my parents always saying things like that whenever we were in trouble. But more than that, it's meant to be an encouragement. To God, you are of great value. And thus you are rich if you are found in him. And in that context comes someone shouting, eh, Jesus, can you tell this jerk of a brother of mine Give me what's mine. I don't want everything. I just want a, a, a piece of the pie. I, I just want what's mine. Mom and dad wanted me to have this. This is, this is mine. I must say, as, as a pastor, I, I get this, right? You're talking about X, and out of nowhere, someone is shouting about Y. And you're asking why about Y, aren't you? Have you not been paying attention? Then again, if you're a parent... You've had this, this moment before, right? Maybe you're having that, that serious conversation over the dinner table, or, or maybe it's in the car on the way to, to school or to work or, or, or to the restaurant, right? And, then, and then, then in the middle of that, your youngest or your middle or whoever, they shout out, they have a question about who would win in a fight between Superman and Hulk. You know, whatever it might be, right? 
You, you just, you just like, man, we, we've missed it. But more than that, it's, it's not just that, that it's a change of direction. But the guy completely misses everything Jesus has, has been talking about leading up to this moment. Again, as, as a pastor, I, I get this. How often will we preach on forgiveness and yet only to witness the agony of bitterness? Or to preach on faith only to witness the agony of doubt? Or to preach on prayer only to, 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 to witness the agony of anxiety? Or, or to preach on perseverance only to witness the agony of fear? Regardless, for what little we have here, it seems that this man is complaining that his brother wants everything. This is the way it always goes. Now, whether or not his brother actually wants everything is up for debate, right? One of the things, let me give you, someone comes up to you to complain about anything. You should probably take about 95% of the grain of salt. Let me give you an example. Preacher, a lot of people talking. We don't like your preaching. Can I tell you what that means? Preacher, I don't like your preaching, right? That's what that means, right? <laughs> you know? Now, give me enough time, I'll find someone else. But for now, it's just me. So too when he says, hey, Jesus, my brother's trying to take everything. And you should probably translate that as he's taken more than I think he should have. That's my suspicion of what is really going on here. Yet you notice what Jesus does. He doesn't engage in the issue. I love this about Jesus. Jesus doesn't engage with drama. Let me tell you, that alone, you should write that down, right? That, that, that will free you in so many things in life. Thou shalt not engage in unnecessary drama, Jesus, right? I mean, you, you, should, you can put that on a meme. Right, because that'll sell. That's how we'll pay off our, our debt. Um, but you know, he's like, I'm not a judge of this. I'm no one's lawyer. I'm from Galilee. I can swing a hammer and I can tell you about the kingdom of God. I don't handle this stuff. Oh, but now that I think about it, that reminds me, your covetousness will destroy you. I love what Jesus does here because you'll notice he, he, he criticizes all covetousness, not just greed. Look, chances are you and I, we sympathize with the complainer here, right? Because it's not fair. This guy's not getting what's his. I mean, his parents loved him too, probably, right? It's not fair that he's not getting a piece of the pie. And in so doing, what have we, we, we've done is we've, we, we've cited, what we've done is say greed is bad, covetousness is okay. Maybe you're still not seeing the difference. Think about our own culture right now. When we have slogans that says, pay fair share, what's theirs is mine. It's not fair to have all that and I don't have as much. Well, what are we communicating there? It's greed in disguise of covetousness. We do this as a culture all the time. We'll say things like, give me what is mine. I want something you have. And so what we see here is that both men, the one possessing everything and the one desiring everything, are both guilty of greed. They're both guilty of covetousness. Why is the one brother holding so fast to everything? Because he wants it. Why does the other one want access to all of it? Because he wants it. Whether rich or poor, whether black or white, whether Republican or Democrat, whether male or female, what we see here is unrighteousness. What we see here is greed and covetousness. We struggle with that as a culture, don't we? What we, what we like to do is because we're a tribal society, we, we like to think people like me are good. We wear the white hats 
people like them are bad, right? If, if, if I'm a poor Southerner, rich Yankees are bad because they're rich Yankees. Now, they may be as generous with their wealth as Mother Teresa. I don't care. They've got too much. I ain't got enough. And people like me are good. People like them are bad. We do this across the board. If, if you vote this way that's different from me, you're a bad guy. I'll never seek to understand why it is you make decisions you make. You must be therefore be unrighteous. We do this with wealth, right? We assume that to be poor is to be righteous, to be wealthy is to be unrighteous. This is not what you're going to find in the Bible. There's plenty of wealthy people in the Bible, from Abraham to David to Solomon to Joseph of Arimathea. They're righteous men. We also have a lot of unrighteous men throughout the Bible, and they're not hard to find. You'll, you'll notice that in the Bible, righteousness and unrighteousness is not defined by tribe. It's defined by obedience to the one who defines what is right and unright. So, so you can be righteous and poor. You can be unrighteous and poor. You can be righteous and rich. You can be unrighteous and rich. And for some reason, that alone is a radical message. But in our age of greed, we have a hard time seeing it. Well, the key here that Jesus appointed us to is that of contentment over covetousness. In fact, I'm reminded of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4, when he says, not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned that in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any case, in every circumstances, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And in that context, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the key that Jesus wants us to see. In pointing out, do not surrender to covetousness. He's not looking at the man's brother. He's looking at the man making the criticism. Includes us all. Well, verse 15 gives us the thesis of really the the, the entire text, doesn't it? He says it there. Take care. Be on your guard against all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. We could add there, or the lack of abundance. I'll give you, I'll give you a hint here. If you're struggling for, for cov- with covetousness, you will never have an abundance. That's the problem. That's the problem. The man who's content always has an abundance. The one who's covetousness never has enough. Did you know that do not covet is in one of the Ten Commandments. Are you aware of that? Uh, chances are, if I were to ask you to recite the Ten Commandments, you, you give me seven, eight, maybe nine, if you're extra spiritual and gone to Sunday school your entire life. And, and, and so you would say things like, don't kill. That's sort of an important one. Don't steal. That's kind of a good idea. Don't commit adultery. Right? That's, that's good. Uh, keep the Sabbath. Right? <laughs> You know, the church has to do something, I guess. And, and you, you think, don't worship other gods. That's, that's a twofer there, so you get the first two knocked out. But man, we always forget that last one. But, but, but one of the things we find about the Ten Commandments is, if you keep the first one, worship only God, you'll, you'll, you'll keep all the other ones, right? Because all of them are a violation of true worship. If you keep the tenth one, you'll keep all the other ones. Because all the other ones are a violation of the Tenth Commandment. 
Why else do we murder and steal and, and, and lie and, and worship false idols? Is it not because we, we have corrupt hearts? The reason we often overlook covetousness is because it gets to the heart of the issue. And the heart of the issue is the hearts. I would not murder without covetousness. I would not steal without it. I would not commit adultery or break the Sabbath or worship other idols without covetousness. You see, covetousness is about more than mere possessions, but our need for, for more of anything more approval, to be loved more, to be validated by others, to be respected by some, to be accepted by all. We'll do anything to get those things. And so we'll covet everything to get those things. So we might criticize this man over his parents' inheritance. But if we're honest with ourselves, we are just as guilty as he. That's the setting. Let's look quickly at the story here in verses 16 to 21. Notice what he says there, um, verse um, verse 16, uh, where he says, he told him a parable saying, the land of a rich man produce plentifully. Now, that is um, not the problem with the text, right? We, 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 we were talking about this. And, and, and chances are, when we read this parable, we read that first verse and we think, ah, that's the problem, he's rich. And if that's what you're getting, you're missing the point of the parable. Jesus is not saying, hey, hey, buddy, look, let your brother have everything, because now he's evil. It's not, it's not what Jesus is saying. The problem with the story is not the man has been blessed by God. Like Jacob had a hundredfold of his, of, of his stocks, right? Abraham and Lot had to separate because uh, the town wasn't big enough for the two of them and all their sheep and, and, and everything else, right? I mean, God has blessed them bountifully. Well, that, that's not the problem, right? Um, uh, but look, look what it goes on there in verse 17. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I'll tear down my barns, build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And look, I read that. I recognize I'm a Southern American. What is wrong with this, right? Can you tell me what is wrong with this? Nothing. Nothing. Think about it. If you're running a business, you may need to expand. In fact, we Americans, we love stories of expansion, don't we? Can I give you a, a good story, a good American uh, story of expansion? July 5th, 1994. I remember it well, I'm sure. There was a company that was officially incorporated in Washington State that went by the name Cadabra. In those days, the company was based out of the founder's garage. A few months later, in September of 1994, they, they bought a domain, Relentless.com. This is my, my, one of the few times I'll say, if you want to, you can, you can type in Relentless.com. From September of 94, when they, they went live with, their, with, with that domain, that's still the, the company's domain, they have grown virtually every year. In fact, right now, they are one of the largest companies in the world. You ever heard of Cadabra? Ever heard of Relentless.com? No. They changed their name. It's Amazon. In fact, right now, you can pull out your, your square of all knowledge, I think, I think you call it. Relentless.com will take you to Amazon.com. To this day, they still own the domain, and they redirect it to Amazon.com. Well, we, we, that's, that's an American story right there. That's an American story. You start in a guy's garage, like, like I think Apple did or, or Facebook did or whatever. You start in someone's garage, I think Facebook started in a dorm. And, and then they expand beyond that. They expand beyond that. And now they've taken over the world. 
I mean, when the postman comes to your house, you're thinking, oh no, the IRS is auditing me, right? Because the only thing you get at your house now is from Amazon, right? I mean, we love stories of, of, of expansion. In fact, this church right now, didn't we expand over a decade ago? Why that? Because it was necessary at the time to expand. Well, there's nothing wrong with this. Look, if, if, if you're raising all these crops and you don't have enough room, build you a bigger barn. What's wrong with that? Sounds like good capitalism to me, right? Dude must be American. But that's not the problem of the parable. The problem, remember, has to address the issue that leads to the parable. And the issue is that of covetousness. Look at verse 19. It says, and, he's, uh, uh, and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. Now, today, we call that early retirement. Right? I mean, isn't that what you call it? State workers, isn't that what you call it? <laughs> Ooh, touchy subject. But yes, this is all he's doing, right? The Lord has blessed him. He has worked hard. And now he is, he's put himself and his family in a situation that he can now buy an RV and travel. Right? But notice the language he uses. His goal in retirement, his goal in building the barns, his goal in expansion is not to bring glory to God, but to bring glory and honor to himself. He speaks to himself. Soul. I will say to myself, relax. Let us eat. Let us drink. Let us be merry. If that language sounds familiar, it's because you remember when we studied the book of Ecclesiastes sometime last year. Ecclesiastes says, look, look, look for, for those who, who don't have Christ at their center, all that is left for them is to eat and to drink and be merry. Because tomorrow you die. That's it. That is it. And so Jesus warns, starting there in verse 20, that such greedy covetousness fails to focus on what matters most. He has worked hard all these years. His greatest desire was to be this wealthy and Jesus' point is that all of this wealth, all of this possessions, if it were all his, tax-free even, will not save his soul. It will not help him in the end. In October of 2003, the founder of Apple, Steve Jobs, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Despite years of multiple treatments, and the wealth to afford any and all operations, treatments, and experimentation, he succumbed to the disease and died of cancer in 2011. You see, this man believes his wealth is sufficient alone to give him the assurance and the security he needs. But Jesus shows in this parable, no, in fact, God alone is in control. You think about it, we Americans... Consider the amount of money we spend on insurance, securities, backup plans, and everything else, believing this will keep us safe. And in an instant, a disease spreads around the world, and we realize it's a lie. Notice the sermon in verses 22 to 34. We don't have time to go into the detail I would like, but I really just want to summarize it. The parable introduces the sermon. So, so we'll see the, 
the story and then the sermon. There's really two general points he makes here. I just want to present them to you right, right up front. The first is covetousness is unhealthy. The other is that contentment is liberating. Right? Covetousness is unhealthy. Contentment is liberating. First of all, look at covetousness is unhealthy. Verse 22 to 23. Uh, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. If contentment, he says here, guards from anxiety. What are people going to think about me? How am I going to get through the day? What's going to happen next? There's an election in four years. Everybody run in panic. If, 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 if contentment guards from such, such anxiety, covetousness fuels anxiety. i got to have more. going to have to work harder, figure out a new plan, enter a new relationship, try something new, vote even harder, try even, even bigger, go even farther. i got to go, i got to go, i got to go. Because whatever it is I'm seeking, whatever it is I want, I have to grab. And it's going to consume me because I think whatever it is I desire will give me uh, only what God can give. This fuels anxiety. This fuels worry and everything else. So if you spend your life pursuing the next thing, wealth, body image, comfort, love, you'll never find what it is that you're looking for. Why? Because these idols never satisfy. They never ultimately fulfill us. So I did something you should probably never do. I got on WebMD this week. I trust you've done that. My elbow hurts. Click on the man, elbow Oh, no, I have cancer, right? <laughs> I mean, just right away, right? It couldn't be you slept wrong or, or that you got an aging body. No, no, I got arthritic cancer. I, I made that up. I'm sure it's around. It'll be discovered in a few years. But they have an article there. So, so because of WebMD, it must be true. Um, they have an article called Health Effects of Anxiety and Worry. In the midst of excessive worrying, you may suffer with high anxiety, obviously, even panic during waking hours. Many chronic worriers tell of feeling a sense of impending doom or unrealistic fears that only increase the worries. Ultra-sensitive to their environment and to the criticism of others, excessive worriers may see anything and anyone as a potential threat. Chronic worrying can affect your daily life so much that it may interfere with your appetite, lifestyle habits, relationships, sleep, and job performance. Many people who worry excessively are so anxiety-ridden that they seek relief in harmful lifestyle habits such as overeating, cigarette smoking, using alcohol and drugs. Chronic worry and emotional stress can trigger a host of health problems. The problems occur when fight or flight is triggered daily by excessive worrying and anxiety. The fight or flight response causes the body's sympathetic nervous system to release stress hormones such as something that I can't pronounce. These hormones can boost blood sugar levels and blood blood fats that can be used by the body for fuel. The hormones also cause physical reactions such as difficulty swallowing, dry mouth, fatigue, inability to concentrate, muscle aches, nausea, rapid breathing, sweating, dizziness, fast heartbeat, headaches, irritability, muscle tension, nervous energy, shortness of breath, trembling and twitching. When the excessive fuel in the blood isn't used for physical activities, the chronic anxiety and outpouring of stress hormones can have serious physical consequences, including suppression of the immune system, digestive disorders, muscle tension, short-term memory loss, premature coronary artery disease, heart attack. If excessive worry and high anxiety go untreated, they can lead to depression and even suicidal thoughts. And let me tell you, if, if, if we are consumed with anxiety due to covetousness or other factors, that is not even the worst you have to worry about. 
These are physical effects that should be obvious to us all. If you are worrying, you can't sleep. If you can't sleep, there's a host of other things, like you're irritable to your spouse constantly. We get this. But there are spiritual effects to such anxiety. And those are the things that will consume you. You'll believe lies like you'll never measure up. There's no way God could love you. You're not good enough. You're unworthy of anything. And that the cross isn't enough for you. That will consume your soul. What is the quote I came across this week? Don't know who said it. Let's just say it's Abraham Lincoln. Money will buy a bed, but it will not buy sleep. It will buy books, but not brains. Food, but not an appetite. Finery, but not beauty. A house, but not a home. Medicine, but not health. Luxuries, but not culture. Amusements, but not happiness. Religion, but not salvation. A passport to everywhere, but not to heaven. See, it's bigger than just your physical health. But your very soul. Well, if covetousness is unhealthy, Jesus makes it clear here that contentment is liberating. And we have to be quick here. To illustrate his point, Jesus directs us to consider creation. He looks at three areas. The ravens in verses 24 to 26. Look at the ravens, right? They don't worry about any of this. The lilies of the field. Look at the lilies. They're more beautiful than all Solomon's kingdom. And then the nations. In each example, we see how creation demonstrates the liberating hope of contentment. The ravens are fed by God. Are you, more, are you not more worthy than they? The lilies blanket the earth, yet they do not work overtime. You're not more beautiful than they. The nations are consumed with worldly goods and worldly things that your father knows what you need. So seek his kingdom, not man's. So the conclusion of it all is given in verse 32 to 34. Fear not. You see how easy it is to, to connect fear with anxiety? Fear, anxiety with covetousness? Fear, anxiety, covenants with greed? They're all related. They're all interconnected. Surrender to one and you will have to balance them all. Do not fear, little flock. It's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Did you see that? No, no, don't miss it in the text. Well, what's the original context of this? I want what's mine. He won't give it to me. What's Jesus' message to that man with covetousness? I give you a kingdom. Isn't that enough? Why do you care so much about an inheritance that your children will fight over one day? I give you a kingdom that you can all have if you accept it. Isn't that far richer? Isn't that far grander? Isn't that more beautiful than what it is that you so desire? So sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Ah, you see that? Covetousness never leads to charity. And you can't have charity without love. So not only is your covetous going to fuel fear, pride, greed, anxiety, worry, but you cannot live by love and be driven by covetousness. But contentment. To say I have enough 
and you, even, and you can have it all, that is fueled by love. Just give it all to the needy. Provide yourself with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Don't you want a kingdom like that? Don't you want possessions like that? Don't you want a home like that? For where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. That's the key, isn't it? You desire what your brother has, that's where your heart is. If you desire the glory of God, that's where your heart is. So if the gospel, as we saw in the kingdom parables, is more valuable to you than anything else, what can you and what will you ever lose in this world? And that's why we can go back to the real setting. Don't fear those who can take the body. Don't fear those who can kick you off social media. Don't fear those who can silence your political activism. Don't fear those who can take you from your job. Fear him, who is Lord over body and soul. He will give you peace. One journalist tells the story of a rich industrialist who was on vacation. And while he was on vacation, he, he found a fisherman sitting lazily beside his boat. They're out, out, ready to go out to sea, but he wouldn't do anything. He, there's his empty boat. Here he is sitting, doing nothing. So the vacationer says, why aren't you out there fishing? Isn't this your job? He says, well, I've caught enough fish for today. Why don't you go catch more fish than you need? The rich man asks. Why would I do that? He asks. Well, you could earn more money, he said. Buy a better boat so you can go deeper and catch more fish. You could purchase nylon nets, catch even more fish, and make more money. Soon you have a fleet of boats and be rich like me. Fisherman said, okay. Then what would I do? Well, he said, you could sit back down by the sea and enjoy life. He passed on the opportunity. So it is in the rat race of life. But it isn't a rat race of life. It's covetousness. Not rooted in the gospel. At least not the gospel that saves. Is Jesus' blood sufficient for you? Not store up for yourself kingdoms on earth. Store up for yourself kingdoms in heaven. For he who purchased you with, your blood, with his blood is there building a home for us. Let's go Lord in prayer.